Chapter 7 of A Popular History of Astronomy During the Nineteenth Century. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Popular History of Astronomy During the Nineteenth Century by Agnes Mary Clerke. Chapter 7, Part 3 Planets and Satellites. The Moon possesses for us a unique interest. She, in all probability, shared the origin of the earth. She, perhaps, prefigures its decay. She is at present its minister and companion. Her existence, so far as we can see, serves no other purpose than to illuminate the darkness of terrestrial nights, and to measure, by swiftly recurring and conspicuous changes of aspect, the long span of terrestrial time. Inquiries stimulated by visible dependence and aided by relatively close vicinity have resulted in a wonderfully minute acquaintance with the features of the single lunar hemisphere open to our inspection. Selenography in the modern sense, is little more than a hundred years old. It originated with the publication in 1791 of Schurter's Selenotopographische Fragmente. Not but that the lunar surface had already been diligently studied, chiefly by Hevelius, Cassini, Riccioli, and Tobias Mayer. The idea, however, of investigating the moon's physical condition and detecting symptoms of the activity there of natural forces through minute topographical inquiry first obtained effect at Lilienthal. Schurter's delineations, accordingly, imperfect though they were, afforded a starting point for a comparative study of the superficial features of our satellite. The first of the curious objects, which he named Rills, was noted by him in 1787. Before 1801, he had found 11. Lormann added 75, Madler 55. Schmidt published, in 1866, a catalogue of 425, of which 278 had been detected by himself, and he eventually brought the number up to nearly 1,000. They are then a very persistent lunar feature, though wholly without terrestrial analogue. There is no difference of opinion as to their nature. They are quite obviously clefts in a rocky surface 100 to 500 yards deep, usually a couple of miles across, and pursuing straight, curved, or branching tracks up to 150 miles in length. As regards their origin, the most probable view is that they are fissures produced in cooling, but Nyssen inclines to consider them rather as dried water courses. On February 24, 1792, Schurter perceived what he took to be distinct traces of a lunar twilight, and continued to observe them during nine consecutive years. They indicated, he thought, the presence of a shallow atmosphere, about twenty-nine times more tenuous than our own. Bessel, on the other hand, considered that the only way of saving a lunar atmosphere was to deny it any refractive power, the sharpness and suddenness of star occultations 
negativing the possibility of gaseous surroundings of greater density admitting an extreme supposition than one of five hundred that of terrestrial air newcomb places the maximum at one of four hundred sir john herschel concluded the non-existence of any atmosphere at the moon's edge having a one in one thousand nine hundred and eighty part of the density of the earth's atmosphere this decision was fully borne out by sir william hugin's spectroscopic observation of the disappearance behind the moon's limb of the small star e piscium january fourth eighteen sixty five not the slightest sign of selective absorption or unequal refraction was discernible the entire spectrum went out at once as if a slide had suddenly dropped over it the spectroscope has uniformly told the same tale for m tolan's observation during the total solar eclipse at sohag of a supposed thickening at the moon's rim of certain dark lines in the solar spectrum is now acknowledged to have been illusory moonlight analyzed with the prism is found to be pure reflected sunlight diminished in quantity owing to the low reflective capability of the lunar surface to less than one-fifth its incident intensity but wholly unmodified in quality nevertheless the diameter of the moon appeared from the greenwich observations discussed by airy in eighteen sixty five to be four minutes smaller than when directly measured and the effect would be explicable by refraction in a lunar atmosphere two thousand times thinner than our own at the sea level but the difference was probably illusory it resulted in part if not wholly from the visual enlargement by irradiation of the bright disk of the moon professor comstock employing the sixteen-inch clark equatorial the washburn observatory found in eighteen ninety seven the refractive displacements of occulted stars so trifling as to preclude the existence of a permanent lunar atmosphere of much more than one in five thousand the density of the terrestrial envelope the possibility however was admitted that on the illuminated side of the moon temporary exhalations of aqueous vapor might arise from ice strata evaporated by sun-heat meantime some renewed evidence of actual crepuscular gleams on the moon had been gathered by messrs paul and prosper henry of the paris observatory as well as by mr w h pickering in the pure air of arequipa at an altitude of eight thousand feet above the sea an occultation of jupiter too observed by him august twelfth eighteen ninety two was attended with a slight flattening of the planet's disk through the effect it was supposed of lunar refraction but of refraction in an atmosphere possessing at most one of four thousand the density at the sea level of terrestrial air and capable of holding in equilibrium no more than one two hundred and fiftieth of an inch of mercury yet this small barometric value corresponds mr pickering remarks to a pressure of hundreds of tons per square mile of the lunar surface the compression downward of gaseous strata on the moon should in any case proceed very gradually owing to the slight power of lunar gravity and they might hence play an important part in the economy 
of our satellite while evading spectroscopic and other tests thus as mr raynard remarked the cliffs and pinnacles of the moon bear witness by their unworn condition to the efficiency of atmospheric protection against meteoric bombardment and mr pickering shows that it could be afforded by such a tenuous envelope as that postulated by him the first to emulate schroeter's selenographal zeal was wilhelm gotthelf lormann a land surveyor of dresden who in eighteen twenty four published four out of twenty-five sections of the first scientifically executed lunar chart on a scale of thirty-seven and a half inches to a lunar diameter his sight however began to fail three years later and he died in eighteen forty leaving materials from which the work was completed and published in eighteen seventy eight by dr julius schmidt late director of the athens observatory much had been done in the interim beer and madler began at berlin in eighteen thirty their great trigonometrical survey of the lunar surface as yet neither revised nor superseded a map issued in four parts eighteen thirty four through thirty six on nearly the same scale as lormann's but more detailed and authoritative embodied the results it was succeeded in eighteen thirty seven by a descriptive volume bearing the imposing title dermond oder allgemeine vergleichende selenographie this summation of knowledge in that branch though in truth leaving many questions open had an air of finality which tended to discourage further inquiry it gave form to a reaction against the sanguine views entertained by hevelius schroeter herschel and gutthuysen as to the possibilities of agreeable residence on the moon and relegated the selenites one of whose cities schroeter thought he had discovered and of whose festal processions gutthuysen had not despaired of becoming a spectator to the shadowy land of the ivory gate all examples of change in lunar formations were moreover dismissed as illusory the light contained in the work was in short a dry light not stimulating to the imagination a mixture of lie bacon shrewdly remarks doth ever add pleasure for many years accordingly schmidt at the field of selenography almost to himself reviving interest in the subject was at once excited and displayed by the appointment in eighteen sixty four of a lunar committee of the british association the indirect were of greater value than the direct fruits of its labors the english school of selenography rose into importance popularity was gained for the subject of the diffusion of works conspicuous for ingenuity and research nasmith's and carpenter's beautiful illustrated volume eighteen seventy four was succeeded after two years by a still more weighty contribution to lunar science in mr nyson's well-known book accompanied by a map based on the survey of beer and madler but adding some five hundred measures of positions beside the representation of several thousand new objects with Schmidt's Charta der Gebirge der Mondes, Germany once more took the lead. 
this splendid delineation built upon lormann's foundation embraced the detail contained in upwards of three thousand original drawings representing the labor of thirty-four years no less than thirty-two thousand eight hundred and fifty-six craters are represented in it on a scale of seventy-five inches to a diameter an additional help to lunar inquiries was provided at the same time in this country by the establishment through the initiative of the late mr w r baird of the selenographical society but the strongest incentive to diligence in studying the rugged features of our celestial helpmate has been the idea of probable or actual variation in them a change always seems to the inquisitive intellect of man like a breach in the defences of nature's secrets through which it may hope to make its way to the citadel what is desirable easily becomes credible and thus statements and rumours of lunar convulsions have successively during the last hundred years obtained credence and successively on closer investigation been rejected the subject is one as to which illusion is peculiarly easy our view of the moon's surface is a bird's-eye view its conformation reveals itself indirectly through irregularities in the distribution of light and darkness the forms of its elevations and depressions can be inferred only from the shapes of the black unmitigated shadows cast by them but these shapes are in a state of perpetual and bewildering fluctuation partly through changes in the angle of illumination, partly through changes in our point of view caused by what are called the moon's librations. The result is that no single observation can be exactly repeated by the same observer, since identical conditions recur only after the lapse of a great number of years. Local peculiarities of surface, besides, are liable to produce perplexing effects, the reflection of earthlight at a particular angle from certain bright summits completely though temporarily deceived herschel in the belief that he had witnessed in seventeen eighty three and seventeen eighty seven volcanic outbursts on the dark side of the moon the persistent recurrence indeed of similar appearances under circumstances less amenable to explanation inclined webb to the view that effusions of native light actually occur more cogent proofs must however be adduced before a fact so intrinsically improbable can be admitted as true but from the publication of beer and madler's work until eighteen sixty six the received opinion was that no genuine sign of activity had ever been seen or was likely to be seen on our satellite that her face was a stereotyped page a fixed and irreversible record of the past a profound sensation accordingly was produced by schmidt's announcement in october eighteen sixty six that the crater linne and the mare serenitatis had disappeared effaced as it was supposed by an igneous outflow the case seemed undeniable and is still dubious Linné had been known to Lorman and Madler, 1822-32, to 32, as a deep crater, five or six miles in diameter, the third largest in the dusky plain known as the Mare Serenitatis, 
and Schmidt had observed and drawn it, 1840-43, to 43, under a practically identical aspect. Now it appears under high light as a whitish spot, in the center of which, as the rays begin to fall obliquely, a pit, scarcely two miles across, emerges into view. The crateral character of the comparatively minute depression was detected by Father Sesci, February 11, 1867. This is not all. Schurter's description of Linné, as seen by him November 5, 1788, tallies quite closely with modern observation, while its inconspicuous in 1797 is shown by its omission from Russell's lunar globe and maps. We are thus driven to adopt one of two suppositions. Either Lormann, Madler, and Schmidt were entirely mistaken in the size and importance of Linné, or a real change in its outward semblance supervened during the first half of the century and has since passed away, perhaps again to recur. The latter hypothesis seems the more probable, and its probability is strengthened by much evidence of actual obscuration or variation of tint in other parts of the lunar surface, more especially on the floor of the great walled plain named Plato. From a re-examination with a 13-inch refractor at Arequipa in 1891-92 to of this region and of the Mare Serenitatis, Mr. W. H. Pickering inclines to the belief that lunar volcanic action, once apparently so potent, is not yet wholly extinct. An instance of the opposite kind of change was alleged by Dr. Hermann J. Klein of Köln in March 1878. In Linné, the obliteration of an old crater had been assumed. In Hyginus N, the formation of a new crater was asserted. Yet quite possibly, the same cause may have produced the effects thought to be apparent in both. It is, however, far from certain that any real change has affected the neighborhood of Hyginus. The novelty of Klein's observation of May 19, 1877, may have consisted simply in the detection of a hitherto unrecognized feature. The region is one of complex formation, consequently of more than ordinary liability to deceptive variations in aspect under rapid and entangled fluctuations of light and shade. Moreover, it seems to be certain, from Messrs. Pratt and Capron's attentive study, that Hyginus N is no true crater, but a shallow, saucer-like depression, difficult of clear discernment. Under suitable illumination, nevertheless, it contains, and is marked by, an ample shadow. In both these controverted instances of change, Lunar photography was invoked as a witness, but notwithstanding the great advances made in the art by De La Rue in this country, by Draper, and above all, by Rutherford in America, without decisive results. Investigations of the kind began to assume a new aspect in 1890, when Professor Holden organized them at the Lick Observatory. Autographic moon pictures were no longer taken casually, but on system, and Dr. Weinick's elaborate study and skillful reproductions of them at Prague gave them universal value. They were designed to provide materials for an atlas, 
on the scale of beer and madlers of which some beautiful specimen plates have been issued at paris in eighteen ninety four with the aid of a large equatorial code a work of similar character was set on foot by Messrs. louis and puceau its progress has been marked by the successive publication of five installments of a splendid atlas on a scale of about eight feet to the lunar diameter accompanied by theoretical dissertations designed to establish a science of selenology the moon's formations are thus not only delineated under every variety of light incidents but their meaning is sought to be elicited and their history and mutual relations interpreted henceforth at any rate the lunar volcanoes can scarcely without notice taken breathe hard in their age-long sleep maloney was the first to get undeniable heating effects from moonlight his experiments made on mount vesuvius early in eighteen forty six were repeated with like result by zantadeschi at venice four years later a rough measure of the intensity of those effects was arrived at by piazzi smith at guajara on the peak of teneriffe in eighteen fifty six at a distance of fifteen feet from the thermal multiplier a price's candle was found to radiate just twice as much heat as the full moon then after thirteen years in eighteen sixty nine to seventy two an exact and extensive series of observations on the subject were made by the present earl of ross the lunar radiations from the first to the last quarter displayed when concentrated with the parsonstown three-foot mirror appreciable thermal energy increasing with the phase and largely due to dark heat distinguished from the quicker vibrating sort by inability to traverse a plate of glass this was supposed to indicate an actual heating of the surface during the long lunar day of three hundred hours to about five hundred degrees fahrenheit corrected later to one hundred ninety seven degrees the moon thus acting as a direct radiator no less than as a reflector of heat but the conclusion was very imperfectly borne out by dr burdick's observations with the same instrument and apparatus during the total lunar eclipse of october four eighteen eighty four this initial opportunity of measuring the heat phases of an eclipsed moon was used with the remarkable result of showing that the heat disappeared almost completely though not quite simultaneously with the light confirmatory evidence of the extraordinary promptitude with which our satellite parts with heat already to some extent appropriated was afforded by professor langley's bolometric observations at allegheny of the partial eclipse of september twenty third eighteen eighty five yet it is certain that the moon sends us a perceptible quantity of heat on its own account besides simply throwing back solar radiations for in february eighteen eighty five professor langley succeeded after many fruitless attempts in getting measures of a lunar heat spectrum the incredible delicacy of the operation may be judged of from the statement that the sum total of the thermal energy dispersed by his rock-salt prisms was insufficient to raise a thermometer fully exposed to it one 
thousandth of a degree centigrade. The singular fact was, however, elicited that this almost evanescent spectrum is made up of two superposed spectra, one due to reflection, the other, with a maximum far down in the infrared, to radiation. The corresponding temperature of the moon's sunlit surface, Professor Langley considers to be about that of freezing water. Repeated experiments have failed to get any thermal effects from the dark part of the moon. It was inferred that our satellite has no internal heat sensible at the surface, so that the radiations from the lunar soil, giving the low maximum in the heat spectrum, must be due purely to solar heat, which has been absorbed and almost immediately re-radiated. Professor Langley's explorations of the terra incognita of immensely long wavelengths, where lie the unseen heat emissions from the Earth into space, led him to the discovery that these, contrary to the received opinion, are in good part transmissible by our atmosphere, although they are completely intercepted by glass. Another important result of the Allegheny work was the abolition of the anomalous notion of the temperature of space, fixed by Poilet at minus 140 degrees centigrade. For space itself can have no temperature, and stellar radiation is a negligible quantity. Thus, it is safe to assume that a perfect thermometer suspended in space at the distance of the Earth or Moon from the Sun, but shielded from its rays, would sensibly indicate the absolute zero, ordinarily placed at minus 273 degrees centigrade. A prize essay on the distribution of the Moon's heat the Hague, 1891, by Mr. Frank W. Very, who had taken an active part in Professor Langley's long-sustained inquiry, embodies the fruits of its continuation. They show the lunar disk to be tolerably uniform in thermal power. The brighter parts are also indeed hotter, but not much. The traces perceived of a slight retention of heat by the substances forming the lunar surface, agreed well with the Parsonstown observations of the total eclipse of the moon, January 28, 1888, for they brought out an unmistakable divergence between the heat and light phases. A curious decrease of heat, previous to the first touch of the Earth's shadow upon the lunar globe, remains unexplained, unless it be admissible to suppose the terrestrial atmosphere capable of absorbing heat at an elevation of 190 miles. The probable range of temperature on the moon was discussed by Professor Very in 1898. He concluded it to be very wide. Hotter than boiling water under the sun's vertical rays, the arid surface of our dependent globe must, he found, cool in the 14-day lunar night to about the temperature of liquid air. Although that fundamental part of astronomy known as celestial mechanics lies outside the scope of this work, and we therefore pass over in silence the immense labors of Plana, de Mousseau, Hansen, Delaunay, G. W. Hill, and Airy, in reconciling the observed and calculated motions of the moon, there is one slight but significant discrepancy, 
which is of such importance to the physical history of the solar system that some brief mention must be made of it halley discovered in 1693 by examining the records of ancient eclipses that the moon was going faster then than two thousand years previously so much faster as to have got ahead of the place in the sky she would otherwise have occupied by about two of her own diameters it was one of laplace's highest triumphs to have found an explanation of this puzzling fact he showed in seventeen eighty seven that it was due to a very slow change in the ovalness of the earth's orbit tending during the present age of the world to render it more nearly circular the pull of the sun upon the moon is thereby lessened the counterpull of the earth gets the upper hand and our satellite drawn nearer to us by something less than an inch per year proportionately quickens her pace many thousands of years hence the process will be reversed the terrestrial orbit will close in at the sides the lunar orbit will open out under the growing stress of solar gravity and our celestial chronometer will lose instead of gaining time this is all quite true as laplace put it but it is not enough adams the virtual discoverer of neptune found with surprise in eighteen fifty three that the received account of the matter was essentially incomplete and explained when the requisite correction was introduced only half the observed acceleration what was to be done with the remaining half here delaunay the eminent french mathematical astronomer unhappily drowned at cherbourg in eighteen seventy two by the capsizing of a pleasure boat came to the rescue it is obvious to any one who considers the subject a little attentively that the tides must act to some extent as a friction brake upon the rotating earth in other words they must bring about an almost infinitely slow lengthening of the day for the two masses of water piled up by lunar influence on the hither and farther sides of our globe strive as it were to detach themselves from the unity of the terrestrial spheroid and to follow the movements of the moon the moon accordingly holds them against the whirling earth which revolves like a shaft in a fixed collar slowly losing motion and gaining heat eventually dissipated through space this must go on so far as we can see until the periods of the earth's rotation and of the moon's revolution coincide nay the process will be continued should our oceans survive so long by the feebler tide-raising power of the sun seizing only when day and night cease to alternate when one side of our planet is plunged in perpetual darkness and the other seared by unchanging light here then we have the secret of the moon's turning always the same face towards the earth it is that in primeval times when the moon was liquid or plastic an earth-raised tidal wave rapidly and forcibly reduced her rotation to its present exact agreement with her period of revolution this was divined by kant nearly a century before the necessity for such a mode of action presented itself to any other thinker in a weekly paper 
published at Kerningsberg in 1754, the modern doctrine of tidal friction was clearly outlined by him, both as regards its effects actually in progress on the rotation of the earth, and as regards its effects already consummated on the rotation of the moon, the whole forming a preliminary attempt at what he called a natural history of the heavens. His sagacious suggestion, however, remained entirely unnoticed, until revived, it would seem independently, by Julius Robert Mayer in 1848, while similar and probably original conclusions were reached by William Farrell of Allensville, Kentucky in 1858. Delaunay was not then the inventor or discoverer of tidal friction. He merely displayed it as an effective cause of change. He showed reason for believing that its action in checking the Earth's rotation, far from being, as Farrell had supposed, completely neutralized by the contraction of the globe through cooling, was a fact to be reckoned with in computing the movements as well as in speculating on the history of the heavenly bodies. The outstanding acceleration of the moon was thus at once explained. It was explained as apparent only. The reflection of a real lengthening by one second in one hundred thousand years of the day. But on this point, the last word has not yet been spoken. Professor Newcomb undertook in 1870 the onerous task of investigating the errors of Hansen's lunar tables as compared with observations prior to 1750. The results, published in 1878, proved somewhat perplexing. They tend, in general, to reduce the amount of acceleration left unaccounted for by Laplace's gravitational theory, and proportionately to diminish the importance of the part played by tidal friction. But, in order to bring about this diminution, and at the same time conciliate Alexandrian and Arabian observations, it is necessary to reject as total, the ancient solar eclipses known as those of Tails and Larissa. This may be unnecessary, but it must be admitted to be a hazardous expedient. Its upshot was to indicate a possibility that the observed and calculated values of the moon's acceleration might, after all, prove to be identical, and the small outstanding discrepancy was still further diminished by Tisserand's investigation differently conducted on the same Arabian eclipses discussed by Newcomb. The necessity of having recourse to a lengthening day is then less pressing than it seemed some time ago, and the effect, if perceptible in the moon's motion, should, M. Tisserand remarked, be proportionately so in the motions of all the other heavenly bodies. The presence of the apparent general acceleration that should ensue can be tested with most promise of success, according to the same authority, by delicate comparisons of past and future transits of Mercury. Newcomb further showed that small residual irregularities are still found in the movements of our satellite inexplicable either by any known gravitational influence or by any uniform value that could be assigned to secular acceleration. 
if set down to the account of imperfections in the timekeeping of the earth it could only be on the arbitrary supposition of fluctuations in its rate of going themselves needing explanation this it is true might be found in very slight changes of figure not altogether unlikely to occur but into this cloudy and speculative region astronomers for the present decline to penetrate they prefer if possible to deal only with calculable causes and thus to preserve for their most perfect of sciences its special prerogative of assured prediction end of chapter seven part three